As you're taking your seats, why don't you grab the Bible that's there in the pew, unless you brought a Bible with you, which I hope you did, and open up to John's first letter to the church, 1 John chapter 3. That's on page 856 in the pew Bible. And as you're getting there, by way of introduction, we live in an ever-changing world. Sometimes it's hard to keep up. Sometimes it's hard to keep track. And in this ever-changing world in which we live, we often at least I do, try to grab hold of the constants, you know? The constants, those aspirations and values that never change. And we grab onto those constants to keep us from getting lost or disoriented in the midst of everything. And for me, and I don't think I'm alone in this, one of those universal and timeless constants is love. Love, it has been sung, makes the world go round. Love, another famous duo crooned, will keep us together. The Beatles once serenaded the world with the mantra, all you need is love. And as we continue this morning to read the Apostle John's first letter to the church, he will not disagree with any of those sentiments. Last week, if you weren't with us, John emphasized our true identity as children of God. We, we can't help but crave love. We can't help but want love, to value love, because we have been made in the image of God who is himself love, a point John will actually develop later in this letter. However, last week, John also teased out for us the reality that the problem of sin, the problem of sin being by its very nature selfish, has tainted our understanding of love, and therefore it's also disordered our expression. Think for a moment about this. We talk about songs. Consider most of the songs in the world today, throughout history, still today, no matter what the genre, from opera to hip-hop, they all revolve around love. And as beautiful and as rapturous as such songs often are, they typically reduce love between two persons to a passing fancy or feeling. At their best, they make professions of undying affection that few of us actually keep. It's not a coincidence, I think, that the experiences of heartbreak predominate the catalog of love songs. My friends, we talk about love. We want love. But the truth is we really don't know what love is. And that's why we're here. That's where John is ready to speak to us because thankfully this morning, John is going to tell us about love real love. He is determined this morning not to let us content ourselves with anything less than the genuine article, the kind of love that does indeed make the world go round, the kind of love that will keep us together, the true and real love we all need. So I invite you, if you have those Bibles open, we're in John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 11. Let's hear what John writes. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, 
And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us love not with words or tongue, but with action and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So John reminds us, as he puts it, of the message we have heard from the beginning. Love one another. And if we stop and think about it, Jesus shared this message with us quite a bit. When asked about the greatest of all the commandments, while giving the Sermon on the Mount, in an upper room after he washed his disciples' feet, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, over a campfire while he was making peace with Peter, Jesus told us quite plainly and repeatedly to love each other. When John writes, this is the message we have heard, what he means is loving one another is the essence of the gospel, the message, the gospel, loving one another, that's it. And when John writes it is a message we have heard from the beginning, he is pointing us not back to the gospels, but all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis, to the garden in which the law of love was inscribed upon the human heart at the moment of creation and then was codified and published later in the law of Moses in Leviticus 19. John wants us to get it. It's all about love. But John also understands that we don't know what love is. And so John begins to point to us, point us to what love is, you'll notice by first delineating what love is not. And this contrast that John sets up here is actually one that he's been hinting at since chapter two. He's made comments like this before, but now he's gonna develop this thought. And the starting point of understanding what love is is understanding what love is not. And John wants us to understand we cannot claim to love to know love, to be expressing love. We cannot claim to love when we indulge or cultivate hatred toward our brother or our sister. And this might throw us. We might push back on this. And so John here develops it. He's kind of thrown it out there before. But here, in order to help us better understand why love and hate cannot coexist in our relationships with each other, John counsels us by way of an illustration, an example from real life from the witness of Scripture. It's the story of two brothers. In fact, the very first pair of siblings in the Bible, Cain and Abel. And if you need a brief refresher, this story, their story can be found in Genesis chapter 4. And when we go to Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel are together. And Cain and Abel are together. They're united in that they are both living their lives in worship before God. They're together in that they're living their lives in worship before God. Where they differ, when we go into Genesis chapter 4, is how they are living their lives before God, in what they bring in terms of their worship. In Genesis chapter 4, it reads that Abel brought the first of his flock, the first of their fat portions, whereas Cain, on the other hand, brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. I don't know if you catch the subtle but significant difference I'm trying to hit for you between their offerings, but here it is. Abel brought his best, the first of what he had. 
Cain brought less than his best, not the first of what he had. And therefore, since it wasn't the first of what he had, by all accounts, it's the leftovers. It's after he took for himself. And in Genesis chapter 4, what's the result of this difference in orientation to the Lord of how we live life before God? It reads, God had regard. He accepted Abel's offering, but God did not accept Cain's. Real important you remember this in remembering this story, and it's right there in Genesis chapter 4. The Lord rejects Cain's offering, but he does not reject Cain as his child. When Cain gets angry about everything, the Lord says to him, why are you angry? If you do what is right, will it not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you but you must rule over it. I really want you to notice the relational dynamic here. The Lord pursues Cain. The Lord pursues Cain and offers him both encouragement and a caution. Do what is right. Do not indulge evil. But if you are starting to remember this story, instead of submitting to our father's counsel, Cain remains preoccupied with comparing himself with his brother. Regrettably, Cain chooses to indulge his anger and to allow it to become envy. And Cain's anger, born of envy, eats away at him until it turns into hatred, the hatred that leads him to kill his brother, to kill Abel in cold blood. My friends, the first murder in human history comes not by accident, not in self-defense, but through one child of God's contempt for another, for his brother. Don't be surprised, John, in pointing to this real-life example. Don't be surprised, John goes on to write, if the whole world continues to raise Cain, to perpetuate hatred, even towards you, don't be surprised, John writes, but don't follow their lead. Don't follow that path. Don't choose to hate. Love one another. Love one another. Throughout this letter, one of John's key themes that he has already brought before us and he's going to come back to again and again is that believing rightly means behaving rightly. If these two don't line up, what we believe and how we behave, if our character and our conduct do not line up, then we aren't being honest with ourselves, with each other, with God. We aren't being honest about what we truly believe, who or what we follow. And here, through the example of Cain, John is highlighting the absence of love. The problem of sin is not just about the act itself or the consequences that follow. The problem of sin begins with the very motive behind our actions. So the first question, beloved, this morning, the first question we have to ask ourselves when we think about our response to the call, to the command to love one another, to love one another, the first question we have to ask ourselves is, is our heart right before God? Is our heart right before each other, our brother or sister? I mean, living in a broken and, gosh, isn't it more and more a hostile world? Living in a broken and hostile world, we are constantly faced with the pressure, the pressure, and I don't care what age you are, 
you know, you have a little bit of a honeymoon period as a kid, but even at middle school, it starts to hit you. We are just hit with this pressure to get ahead, right? To succeed, to make something of ourselves, to be liked, to be accepted, to gain the approval of others. And once it starts, that pressure doesn't stop. It builds and it builds and it cranks up. And under that pressure, when things don't go our way, right? When things don't go our way, when we aren't getting the attention, when we aren't getting the respect we feel we deserve, rather than humble ourselves and glean from the direction of our Father, we, like Cain, get caught up in the comparison game. We get caught up in the comparison game and we allow jealousy and envy rather than love to motivate our relationships with others. And all that jealousy, all that envy, it infects not only our mind, it corrupts our heart. It corrupts our heart as it slowly turns into hatred. You know, hatred. That hatred that simmers beneath the surface as we look for flaws in the other person's life or make cynical remarks about them in order to put them down. It's that hatred that festers underneath our sensitive skin as we constantly fixate on the condition of the other person's life using their troubles or their doubts to make us feel superior about ourselves. The more we cater to such hatred, the more we allow it in, the easier it becomes to write the other person off, doesn't it? To treat them with contempt or indifference, the easier it becomes to cut them down in order to make ourselves feel better. The easier it becomes to cut them off from others by bad-mouthing them or gossiping about them. The easier it becomes to commit character assassination, to murder another person, perhaps not with our hands, but within our hearts. John is adamant you see this. John is adamant. He writes, to indulge in hatred toward another person, anyone is to remain in death. I don't know how much, (laughs) how harder John could write it. John, but John goes further and he says, eternal life does not reside in someone who chooses to take a life. Hear that. Eternal life does not reside in someone who chooses to take a life. The power of the resurrection rolled away the stone and therefore it will not abide in the person who insists on living inside the tomb. We must let go of our anger. We must fess up about our envy and our jealousies. We must put down our weapon of choice and stop exuding our bitterness and our hatred towards others. We can't even begin to go where John wants to lead us if we don't start here. John turns us around, and in turning us around, he points us in the right direction. He tells us that if we indulge in hatred toward another person, then we're remaining in death. But he says if we want to pass from death to life, if we have passed from death to life, then we love. We love each other. And when we're brought to our knees like this, if we're willing to kind of face what love is not and where love is not in our lives, we're in a place where John can really speak to us because I am. I'm in a place where I say, well, how? How can I love others? How, How do I know what real love is? And John doesn't leave us in suspense, man. John doesn't leave us in suspense. John says, instead of taking another's life, 
Love is when Jesus laid down his life for us. We, don't, we talk about the cross. We, we sing about the cross. But we really need to sit in the reality of the cross, the implications of the cross. And that's what John's taking us. Beloved, our life, our life, your life, my life, our life, which God had, has every right to take. He has every right to take both through right of ownership and through the complete failure of obedience on our part. Our life, your life and mine, which God had, has every right to take. The Father protects. The Father saves. The Father betters by giving his life for us through Christ. And what John is having us just sit in the simplicity and yet the depth of that, what he's trying to say is, you want to know what love is? That's love. That's real love. Real love unconditional, unmerited love. That's love. And we tap into that love, that real love that John is talking about here. We tap into that when our starting point is not seeking or finding love through others, but in recognizing and receiving, believing and trusting in the love that is ours, the love given to us through the presence of the Holy Spirit filling us and drawing us closer to our Father through the willing sacrifice, the total forgiveness, and the complete redemption accomplished by the Son, Jesus Christ. Once again, and I've used this phrase before, it's the vertical that informs the horizontal. When we focus more on the other person, we become distracted from our relationship with God. To reconnect this, to connect this with last week, where we were last week, and if you weren't with us, I think I'll give you enough that you can track. Last week, we learned, John told us, our identity and our security, the love we long for, the love we need, the love we want to give, comes not from each other. The recognition or approval of others. That love comes from our Father in heaven declaring us as his children and reclaiming us, bringing us home through Christ. My friends, that's why we're here, isn't it? We have died to conditional love and false identities. Isn't that what we believe? Isn't that why we're here? Because we have died to conditional love and false identities based on the fickle opinions of others or the changing fads of this world. We're here because we believe we no longer have to justify ourselves to others and even to ourselves. Jesus died for us. He endured a death we could not and we cannot accomplish on our own. Again, sitting in the reality of the cross, what does that mean? That Jesus died a death that we could not and cannot die on our own. What it means is, as John teases it out, is Jesus died to all of our hate, all of our jealousy, all of our sin. He died to all of it. And instead of being like Cain, John is writing, and letting our anger and our hatred kill each other, we can let, we can let Christ put to death all the jealousy and the hatred inside of us. In handing our lives over to Jesus, accepting his death for us and abiding in his new life, in trusting him to tell us who we are and to transform us into who we are becoming, who we really are, we can experience more and more freedom 
to love our sisters and our brothers rather than to compete or compare ourselves with them. What is this freedom? This freedom is the freedom to love like Jesus. That's what John is pointing us to. Freedom to love like Jesus, to love one another like Jesus loves us. What is love? Jesus showed us. He laid down his life, John writes, and therefore so should we. So should we. The freedom to love like Jesus is the freedom, the power, it is the strength, it is the courage to lay down our lives for one another, to lay down our lives for each other without fear, without resentment. And again, to, to, we're getting into some depth here. We're getting into, we're, we're, we're getting into the marrow, the meat of what real love is. And, and in order to, to sit in this, consider again, consider why did Jesus lay down his life for us? Jesus laid down his life out of his fullness, the fullness of his life with the Father. The Gospels make this clear over and over again. Jesus laid down his life for us out of the fullness of his life with the Father. In other words, Jesus didn't do it. He didn't lay down his life in order to be approved or liked. Jesus, no, knew who he was. He knew his identity. He trusted where he was going. Jesus didn't lay down his life because he needed to or he had to. If you were with us last week, we talked about this. The three orientations we have to living life. Most of us live in have to or need to, and God wants us to live in want to. Jesus didn't lay down his life because he had to or because he needed to, though most of us frame it that way. Jesus wanted to give his life for us. He wanted to give his life for us because Jesus loved the Father and because Jesus loves us too. He wanted to. My friends, Jesus loves us just the way we need and he loves us in the way that we desperately hope and desire for in the deepest and most profound way. And John writes, when you understand, when you let that sink in, when you let it get past your mind and into your heart and into the depths of your soul, and the call to love like Jesus, to love each other by laying down our lives, it's no longer something that fills us with fear or resentment. It's no longer a call or a command that we hear because we should. Suddenly we, we, we're drawn to it because we can. We can. My friends, we can lay down our lives for each other. We can lay down our lives for each other because we have freedom. The freedom that comes from our, the forgiveness of our sins. We're no longer trapped in guilt and shame out of the freedom of knowing that our sins are forgiven. We can lay down our lives for each other. We can lay down our lives for each other because we have been set free from our fear of death. We don't have to worry or wonder or be afraid of what lies beyond. It is not the great unknown. It is not darkness. It is darkness that becomes light. We don't have to be afraid of what is beyond us and therefore we can lay down our lives for each other. We can lay down our lives for each other because we have the power through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of God's word, through the power of the body of Christ, we have the power to be freed from the influence of evil. Evil is real. Evil exists. Evil is in this world, but we don't have to be influenced by it. We have the power to be freed from it so we can lay down our lives for each other. 
in giving us his life, his death, and his resurrection, we have nothing to lose. We have nothing to lose in laying down our lives for each other. We have nothing to lose, but we have everything to gain. Because the love of Christ, the love that is Jesus, it increases in our lives. It increases in our experience. We, are, we grow in our understanding of it. We enlarge our capacity to share it the more that we lay down our lives. The more that we lay down our lives, the greater our experience, the greater our understanding of this love, the greater our capacity to share it. The less we hold on to, the more we have to give away. This is our Father's invitation to us. This is what John is writing. This is our Father's invitation. We lay down our lives for others. And again, taking it down to even deeper another notch, when we lay down our lives for each other, God's invitation is for us to participate in God's own giving of his life to that person through Jesus. I mean, we, we think of the cross as a static reality, but it is an ongoing reality. It transcends linear time. Do you understand this? When we are called to lay down our lives for each other, when we answer that call, God is inviting us to participate in God's giving of his own life to that person through Jesus. I'm going to drop down on my knees. I'm going to take off my shoes. I can't stand in the midst of that reality. When we lay down our lives for each other, we gain the privilege and the honor of not only seeing how our Father is at work in another person's life. Beloved, hear this. We are actually able to be a part of it, to participate, to be used by God in that work of saving, of redeeming, of transforming that life. What more would you want? What more could you ask for? It's too much. It's too much. And in fact, it's, it's so mind-blowing, so awesome, so, again, you know, we could wax on about it in a sermon or in a song. John wants to catch us real quick because it sort of takes us up into the heavens. But John, at the end of our passage here today with the last two verses, wants to make sure we don't get just lost in our thoughts. And with the last two verses, John wants us to make sure we understand something, that real love is more than words. Real love, he writes, real love Love, like Christ, is expressed with actions and in truth. John has already pointed to what kind of action? Laying down our life. And when he writes it's in truth, he means real love always points back to its source. To Jesus. And again, if that's still too ethereal for us, he offers us a quick example in what he writes. He goes, okay, look, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? John is pointing out, and it's only one example, one way we lay down, one way we lay down our life for another person is to have compassion towards them, to meet them in their need out of what we have to give. And again, we do this because Christ had pity on us and therefore met us in our need, giving us all he had. When we do likewise, we are not only living rightly following Jesus, we are living truthfully. We are pointing to the truth of Christ. We are pointing to the love of God within us. But when we don't, how, there's nothing to point to. Beloved, what John is hitting here at the end is that God's love is not just to be admired. 
as if it were somehow on display in a museum or a gallery. No, God's love is to be reflected. It's to be magnified through shining, through shining through us. Love, in other words, must always be productive. Real love, love that is grounded in the reality of Christ is always productive. It should accomplish meeting the needs of another in some God-given way. And I'm a visual person, so another way to hit this one last time, I uh, briefly studied to be a lifeguard. But, so picture this scene. Imagine you're uh, down at the pier, and you see someone drowning in the ocean, okay? And you're up on the pier, and you see them drowning, and they're crying out, help, help, save me. And you grab a life preserver and throw it to them. And say, see how much I love you? That's, the person who's you know, in the ground swimming, thinking they're going to die, is not going to be feeling the love. Right? Real love in that instance, in that moment, is not throwing somebody a life preserver and saying, hey, I love you. It's getting in the water. It's getting in the water. It's facing the current. It's facing the threat, the risk, the possibility that you might lose your life too because of that water, because of the conditions, because of that person. That's real love. We don't just tell someone Jesus loves them. And as a church, we're really good at that. We're really good, and I'm not mocking this. We're really good at telling people Jesus loves them. But what John is trying to hit at the end here is we don't just tell someone Jesus loves them. We show that person the love of Jesus. And I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to you. We got some work to do in that department. And so let's get practical. Let's close it out by being practical about what John shares with us. I mean, knowledge, as I said last week, is great, but practice is what counts, what shapes us. So as a way of applying what John is sharing with us, we're going to try to bring it into the reality of our lives. And so I'm going to share a question I get a lot. And I'm going to share a question I get a lot that might get your attention if I don't have it already. And this question that I get a lot is, how am I supposed to love someone who is LGBT? And if you're not familiar with that, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. How am I supposed to love someone who is LGBT? And maybe it's apparent, but perhaps not. What actually lies behind that question is another one, and it's this. How do I love someone with whom I disagree? Or more specifically, whom I believe is living contrary to the will of God? Now, if we're paying attention, the Obvious answer, perhaps, is to say, well, love them like Jesus. That's what John says. It's obvious to say love them like Jesus because this is what we might say or think, but this is the not-so-obvious answer, not because we don't say it or think it. It's not so obvious because I don't know if we know how to practice it, how to practice the love of Christ. What I mean is, when it comes to questions, to relationships like these, what I witness in the church, in the world, among believers, followers of Jesus, is we tend to love the other person with what I'll call this morning ands, ifs, or buts. We tend to love the other person with ands, ifs, or buts. And what do I mean by that? Ands. I love you, and I'll also let you know repeatedly that I disapprove of what you're doing, of how you're living, just so you don't get confused about where I'm coming from. Ifs. I'll love you if you agree with me. I'll love you if you at least admit what you're doing is wrong. I'll love you if you stop doing what you're doing. And then buts. I love you, but I will set limits on my involvement. 
my participation, my presence in your life. I love you, but I will not show up or publicly appear to endorse or support what you are doing that I believe is wrong. Ands, ifs, or buts. Now, what I want to argue is before we put all the restrictions and qualifications and additions onto our love for each other, maybe the place to start is to step back and ask ourselves, how does Jesus love us? We can say love like Jesus, but to really ask, how does Jesus love us? John tells us, Jesus loves us by laying down his life for us, okay? The Gospels build upon that. The Gospels reveal that Jesus loves us by laying down his life for us, in fact, even before he goes to the cross. Do you see that? Jesus lays down his life for us in love even before he goes to the cross. How can I say that? Because what the Gospels repeatedly highlight for us is Jesus publicly and practically loves sinners. And let's just take you through the group so you can appreciate the wide spectrum that the Gospels present to us. Jesus publicly and practically loves Samaritans. And again, you need to understand, Samaritans are people of a completely different religion. They are not of the same faith. Jesus loves publicly and practically people of an absolutely different religion. Jesus loves publicly and practically tax collectors, people of a different moral code and value system. Jesus loves publicly and practically centurions, people of a different political affiliation. Jesus loves publicly and practically Gentiles, people of a completely different culture. Abraham, never heard of him. Moses, who's that? People of a completely different culture. Jesus loves publicly and practically. Jesus lays down his life even before the cross because in being with those people, he sacrifices his image and reputation. You notice what happens in the Gospels? Notice what people start to say? He eats with tax collectors and sinners. Huh, that's what we know about this guy. He sacrifices his credibility. Do you remember what they say about Jesus? He's possessed by a demon. He's a bad guy. We might even argue from the Gospels that he, Jesus sacrificed the success of his mission in laying down his life for others in this way. Because again, I mean, doesn't it even cross your mind just for a second? Jesus would have won more people over if he wasn't so loving. If he had kind of laid down the law. And that's the whole point. The whole point of his mission, self-declared, was to show the love of God to the world. Jesus was revealing the radical, revolutionary love of God to the world. It turned everything upside down. It, it, it blew people's minds. Even though he disagreed with what they were doing, and I don't think that you can argue at all, in every case that we talked about, Samaritans, centurions, tax collectors, Gentiles, Jesus wasn't in the closet. Jesus wasn't hiding about what he was preaching or teaching, even though he disagreed with what they were doing. How they were living. What we see again and again in the Gospels is Jesus talked with them. He was seen with them. He ate with them. He helped them. He invited them into the kingdom. In some cases, he affirmed their faith in him even though they hadn't repented yet. Go back and look. I would love like you to go back in and write that in. After they had repented, he affirmed their faith in him. <laughs> it's not there. 
And this is important because I think part of the reason we don't love one another like Jesus is because we have been mistakenly taught or we mistakenly believe the love of God comes after repentance. That, that love comes as a condition of repentance. Now, we might not consciously say that or think that out loud, but here's the thing, friends. When we place ands, ifs, or buts in our love for each other, that is what we are communicating. But the beauty of the gospel, in case you have missed it or haven't heard it, the beauty and the truth of the gospel is it's the other way around. The love of God leads to our repentance. Our repentance doesn't lead to God loving us. God's love of us changes us. Repentance itself is a work of grace. Hear that, church? Because many of us go, okay, Jesus forgave me. Now it's my turn. You did the heavy lifting, Lord. I got to repent. We don't repent independently. How's that working out for you? We don't repent independently. It's an act of grace. We are changed. We are repented, if you will. We don't change in order to be loved. Being loved is what changes us. You got to get this, because if you don't get this, you're not going to understand what John is saying. God doesn't put any condition on his love for us, even when we disagree or oppose him. Don't misunderstand. Doesn't mean God likes it. But God loves us even when we disagree or oppose him. In his love for such people that we talked about, for everyone, Jesus didn't practice any ands, ifs, or buts. So neither should we. But I don't like that person. Anyone ever said that? I don't like that person. How can I love them? Good question, honest question. Here it is. Liking is a matter of personal preference. Loving is a matter of obedience. I don't like all of you. I mean, I, I said this in the last service and there were several audible gasps. But I'm being very, very honest with you. I mean, I'm, I, I, you're not all my personal preference, right? And I'll, I'll put it, turn it around the other way. I'm not going to be surprised if all of you don't like me. I'm not everybody's cup of tea. No, you hear this. But I love you. And I hope and I pray and I rely on your love of me. Now, don't get me wrong in that part of me that, again, doesn't rely on my identity being defined by Christ, that insecure part of myself that the Spirit's still working on. It does bother me that you don't like me. I really want you to like me. But I don't need you to like me. Because God loves me. Because God loves me. And somewhere in the first service they got confused, so let me make this really clear. God likes you. Because here's the thing, we separate those two things. God doesn't. We, 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 we you know, that's what, the, the very question de, de betrays the problem. Well, I don't like them, so how can I love them? God doesn't do that. God loves us. Here's the thing. Liking is a matter of personal preference. Loving is a matter of obedience. Here's the thing. Loving people you don't like means treating them as if you did as if you did like them. And there's nothing false about that. You're not, there's nothing artificial about that because what it means is we love each other 
in a way that pleases Jesus. And what I mean by pleases Jesus is we love each other in a way that reflects to that person, that exhibits to them how Christ would act and does act toward them. Meaning we transcend our preferences and realize this person is a beloved child of God. This person was worth dying for. Jesus loves this person. We don't get caught up in like. We love. But that's not really our big problem. Our big problem is not that we don't like the other person. I mean, that's there. The thing, here's, here's what I hear. But I don't like what they're doing. I don't like what they're doing. It's not right. It's not what I believe. And going back to the initial question, how should I love someone who's LGBT, the question that, comes, that gets even more practical, and I, I, I said it in the first service, so I guess I'll go for broke and say it in the second. We'll see what happens. Is it goes... How should I interact with someone who's gay? You know what I hear? Should I attend their wedding? Because that's a thing now. Should I attend their wedding? Am I actually going to answer that out loud? Yeah, I am. Should I attend their wedding? Well, let me ask you this instead. Would you go to a wedding service for a Buddhist? Would you even think twice about it? Because they don't believe the same things we believe about marriage. Would you go to a wedding before a justice of the peace down at the city of Huntington Beach? Because late-breaking newsflash, they don't have the same understanding of marriage that we have. Would you go to the birthday of a child born out of wedlock? Or do you go, oh, you had a child, you weren't married, or you don't know who the father is, I'm not showing up for that birthday. Would you? The question today seems to focus on gender, the LGBT question, but what I'm trying to tease out for you is this is a much bigger question. It's not restricted to just gender. We could ask this same question about politics, and my God, that is happening. <laughs> we could ask this question just about basic cultural differences, different religions. This is a much bigger question. And the thing is, what we, we, we shy away from this command. We shy away from what we're capable of doing, we're empowered to do, because we're afraid. And the thing is, sacrificial love, loving like Jesus, hear this, does not mean enabling or endorsing values or behaviors we disagree with. Sacrificial love doesn't mean enabling or endorsing values or behaviors we disagree with. Sacrificial love, loving like Jesus, hear this, is not allowing those disagreements, whatever they are, to be greater than the love of God and our love for that person. That means encouraging and embracing that person in spite of our disagreements, no matter what they are. I'm going to come clean. I have a good friend who's gay. There's no mistaking. He knows that we are in different places on this. But that does not preclude me from loving him. I shared this once with someone who was a fellow believer, and they literally said to me, how can you be friends with someone who is living in sin, who is doing what is abhorrent to God? And I just bypassed the questions. How can I not love them? They're my friend. And that doesn't mean I agree with everything they do. I'm never going to tell you my political affiliation, but I love lots of people who I think are whacked politically. <laughs> I don't agree with them at all. I literally want to lock them up so they don't get to vote. <laughs> but I love them. Because they're a part of my life. Because there is no way in heck I am going to let a political issue or any issue 
be greater than the love of God revealed in my life and the love of God that I am called to witness and present to them. And when you ask yourself, what does love look like to lay down our life? That means I am willing to lay down my reputation. That means I'm willing to lay down what others are going to think about me. I'm willing to be labeled for the sake of that love, just like Jesus. Because at the end of the day, I don't answer to you. I answer to him. At the end of the day, what I'm going to be called account to account for is not how much Doctrine, and I'm not downvaluing doctrine at all. What I, hear me on this, because doctrine matters. There's things that we, we need to know what we believe. But what we believe, what we, where we disagree, does not trump the love that is given to us. If, and again, I can't know how to say this if I haven't made it clear. If, we, if I've got it wrong, we wouldn't be here right now. If Jesus loved us because we had it all together, because we believed or agreed 100% with God, we wouldn't have a need for the cross. And if it doesn't matter, if it matters that we got to have everything lined up, we have to be perfect, then we'd be dead. We are following Jesus. We're not blazing a new trash, trash, uh, track. We're loving like Christ. My friends, it's making our love for that person, and by extension, God's love for that person, greater or more influential that divide, than what divides us. Our love for one another is to transcend what divides us from each other because that is the kind of love, the real love expressed by Jesus towards us. If we can do nothing to earn God's love, how can we insist on others to do something to have ours? The heart of this world in which we live, man, <laughs> the heart of this world in which we live is in cardiac arrest the arteries of relationships between us as children of God, the arteries of our relationships between us as brothers and sisters together have been hardened and clogged by prejudices, stereotypes, and vendettas that are cultivated by fear, ignorance, and indifference. The Beatles were right. All we need is love. But apart from God, the only love we can find, the only love we can give is cheap, superficial, short-lived substitutes. Cheap, superficial, short-lived substitutes of the real thing. And that is why you turn on the television, you turn on the TV, and we are getting really, really good at packaging and selling romance. We're getting really, really good at patting ourselves on the back at making a one-time tax-deductible donation in the name of love and thinking that's what it means to love our fellow man. We're convincing ourselves that what we embrace today that feels good that doesn't have any lasting commitment tomorrow, well, that just me must be what love is. And some of us, and I can't even believe I'm saying this out loud, and this does bring me to my knees. Some of us are even disturbingly convincing ourselves to love the hatred we feel. I don't know if I'm talking to anybody today, but I, if I am, hear me. There are more and more people out there, and it scares me who are loving the hatred they feel. They're feeding off the passion of their bitterness, their rage, and their resentments. That is not the love of God. We all know John 3.16, right? 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him should not die but have eternal life. We all know John 3.16. It's perhaps not only the best remembered of all the verses John ever wrote, it's perhaps the most well-known of all the scriptures. I don't think it would be a stretch to argue that for many of us, this verse sums up the entirety of not only the gospels, but the, the Bible, the word of God itself. We all know John 3.16. But let's not forget 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. John begins by repeating what he told us when he wrote his gospel, that through the cross, we see the fullness of God's love for us. And then John reminds us not to lose sight of the implications of encountering love like this, real love. Jesus' voluntary offering of himself on the cross is more than just a historical event. It is more than just the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Jesus' voluntary offering of himself on the cross is the standard bearer for our own understanding and expression of love. Jesus shows us the way, the truth, and the life of real love is not self preservation. It is self-sacrifice. Before the reality of evil, the shadow of death, and the seduction of rage, the answer is not to take up our lives in the pursuit of vengeance or with fostering of hatred. The answer, the call of Christ, is to lay down our lives with love enacted through works of compassion, words of forgiveness, and hopeful trust in the righteousness of God. Beloved, the love we see in Christ, the love we have found in him, is the love we are to give to one another. Amen.